Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds. Welcome back, Marky. We've missed you for two weeks. Uh, we thought this week. Oh, thank you. We thought we thought <laughs> this week we would um, start with a couple of questions from some listeners. Starting with Paul Bruce of Stonehaven, Scotland, who's emailed to say, um, "You talked, Dad, in a documentary about Bob Monkhouse being a very quiet person in private. Can you elaborate on that, please?" Uh, that's the Paul Bruce. Okay. Well, Paul. Um, yeah, if you went to to Bob's house, uh, it was very relaxed. There was some classical music playing very gently in the background. But most of the time he used to pad around the house going from video recorder to video recorder or sit there quietly with a, a notepad on his lap and scribble jokes or doodle uh, cartoons. Uh, even when he was uh, in his home in the West Indies in Barbados, the... Um, all he could hear in the house was the, the ocean uh, rolling in gently on those golden sands on that west coast. Uh, I, I don't know, I think, I suppose because he was used to a louder environment in various entertainment v- venues, he used to, as I say, pad around in his slippers very relaxed and very, very quietly. What he did say was that when you leave the house... I suppose when you're at Bob Monkhouse's level of fame, where, you know, everybody knows you, like him or not, people knew him at that time. Whenever you leave the house and close the door behind you, it's showtime. It's very likely that someone will come up to you in the street or in in the shopping mall or the supermarket and want an autograph or want to chat or be abusive (laughs) but but Bob always said you know you've got to be polite to everybody because they're the reason you're doing what you do they're the reason that you live the life that you do that they buy tickets to see you and all it takes is one person to go home and say Bob Monkhouse is horrible I met him in the street and he he scowled he didn't talk he blanked me and the person that they tell is going to tell somebody else until suddenly a bad reputation grows exponentially. Now, might happen in a little little area, but if you do that enough times, apparently, as someone well-known, then the word gets out that you're a nasty bag of worms and people will stop liking you. And I think Bob based his entire lifelong career working to that end. That was his ethos. You've got to be polite and nice to everybody. 
I remember uh, when we used to go to his house, he was always very welcoming and it was always a nice, cosy, quite a homely house. I mean, it was a big house, mm. but each room was nice and comfortable and yeah. it was, uh, it was a, a welcoming home. Yes, it was. And they were very welcoming hosts, uh, he and his wife, Jackie. They really were gracious uh, dinner party hosts. And a lot of people went through those doors um, ostensibly to see him uh, for meetings. Um, um, gosh, we spent so long at that particular house uh, in Eggington in, in Bedfordshire. Oh, yeah, there was a point where, before I knew your mum, where I could get in the car where I lived in East Coast at the time and actually say to the car, right, uh, going to Bob's, please. And the car knew exactly where to go. <laughs> you know, it drove itself there. I was going there a couple of three times a week uh, to do... Um, writing and chatting and stuff and meetings um, and all the Bobswell House script meetings were held up there um, and the chat show meetings were held up at that house so yes they, he was used to company and I suppose that's another answer to Paul's question um, when he was by himself uh, and not having to think on his feet and, and be Bob Monkhouse he could actually enjoy a, a very quiet life he wasn't a loud person that's for sure it wasn't, wasn't in any way show-offy. I guess he left that for the stage. We hope that answers your question, Paul. Thank you very much for emailing in. Um, another question from Ian Young of Glasgow, uh, another Scottish listener. Ah, good man. We're obviously popular in the Highlands. <laughs> um, uh, Ian would like to know what it was like working on the Royal Variety performances. Oh, yeah, because I did... A f I did say in a previous podcast Ian that I did a few of those into the 90s and the early 2000s I suppose uh, it, it was alright it was fine it, oddly enough you know and this is going to sound sacrilegious but it wasn't special it was a job the only difference being that if you went along which I, I guess I did yeah of course I did every time um, you had to wear a, a dinner suit and a bow tie even if you were standing in the wings behind the scenes my job really was for any of the performers that didn't want to write their own introductions to the next act, I would write it for them. By and large, that was the case. I'd also supply that voiceover that you hear, or you heard at the beginning of all those Royal Variety shows, be it Gloria Hunniford or Andy Peters or... I can't think of who else. Nice people, though. Uh, the voice service is, and Her Majesty the Queen's car is approaching the London Palladium, and, and here to welcome her is the general manager of the Palladium, whoever he was, uh, accompanied by Mr Laurie Mansfield, who's the president of the Entertainment Arts and Benevolent Fund. That kind of commentary, you know, and here there is the Welcome Committee, uh, Peter Pritchard, OBE, who is the, the life governor, and presenting the flower, oh, you know, presenting the flowers, Mrs Dunabunk. Okay, that's kind of what was involved it was great fun you were aware of i suppose the occasion because you did bump into people in the corridor who were internationally famous there's no doubt about that at all so i suppose me being blase about it to begin with from a writing perspective it was it was a nice gig it wasn't a tough gig quite frankly uh, i suppose it was the being there that made such a difference as well uh, yes and a, of course an honor it was nice to be asked wasn't it were any of the uh, big acts um, particularly nice or fondly, rank fondly in your memories? I, yeah, I do remember, and this wasn't a Royal Variety show, but it was a Royal-related show. It was um, 
It was a Queen Mum's 90th birthday celebration produced by the great Yvonne Littlewood. And more of her in a future podcast, I think. One of the great ladies of uh, British television. She put together this show and called me up and said, can you help on the, uh, can you help me out on a double act? I've got a double act coming on the show and in the middle of a My Fair Lady sequence. And I need about two minutes of chat between these two people. And I said, oh, Yvonne, I'm a bit busy. You know, um, you know it's, I was thank you for thinking of me. I said, well, who is it? She said, it's Roger Moore and Michael Caine. And I said, when do you want it by? She said, Monday, which is two days away. I said, right, OK, I'll do it. Yes, I was there. Uh, so so I found that Roger Moore particularly and Michael Caine were absolutely charming and they were everything that you wanted stars of that magnitude to be. Tina Turner, I remember, being lovely. There was one particular show which was produced by Ian Hamilton, a Royal Variety show, which was produced by Ian. I can't remember the damn date. The Royal Variety performance used to flip-flop between the BBC and ITV. BBC would take it one year, often produced by Kevin Bishop. ITV would take it over the next year, sometimes produced by John K. Cooper or Nigel Lithgow, or um, who else would have done it? I can't remember. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So luckily, because both both sets of producers who flip-flopped from BBC ITV... Um, kind of knew me what I did they just I was just an easy phone call to make when they were producing the royal show the, but the one occasion that I was really looking forward to which Ian produced was going to star Sammy Davis Jr Sammy Davis Jr was going to top the bill oh god he's my favourite entertainer of all time Sammy Davis gee god he was brilliant and unfortunately he couldn't make it because he was ill he'd been diagnosed with the cancer that took him off and he was just too ill to travel and that was a great disappointment so at the last minute they scratched around Ian and uh, Amanda Berry his researcher scratched around in order to fill uh, the top of the bill spot uh, who was that guy that oh Jerry Lewis that's right Jerry Lewis uh, stepped in and flew across to close the uh, the royal top of the bill at the Royal Variety Show close the show no one was particularly excited by Jerry Lewis because he had a very notoriously disagreeable reputation his spot was not a success and so yeah, the, the theatre show was marvellous of course because it was a salute to Las Vegas uh, an idea of Ian's which was brilliant and a lot of people from Las Vegas came over like Lance Burton the magician and Tina Turner came over and actually for the television show what Ian masterfully did in the edit was to flip-flop to use that word again today, uh, Tina Turner and Jerry Lewis. So Tina Turner actually closed the show on television and it was a great finish. Uh, in the actual theatre recording, Tina Turner closed the first half. And I remember Jerry Quite Lewis... Quite dramatic for the, uh, what would have been the headliner then, if he was no longer closing the show on TV. Yeah, I suppose, because the show went out about a week later... And he would have got him back in wherever he lived. And I don't suppose he'd got to find find out, really. He'd just dine on the fact that he closed the Royal Variety Show and never seen the, seen the damn thing. I, I didn't encounter him, but the, the stories backstage were a, a rather someone of a disagreeable disposition. Not appreciative of, of him. Not, yes, and him not appreciative, appreciative, if, is that the word? Uh, said the wordsmith, of um, what people were trying to do for him truth be told um so yeah I, I suppose i did about half a dozen raw variety shows and was honored and flattered to do them as a writing gig not that arduous to be truthful
And I hope that um, that answers your question, Ian. Thank you very much, Ian. Uh, so you mentioned Peter Pritchard uh, a little bit earlier, actually, in answering Ian's question. Hmm. So uh, Peter was Bob's agent, and he also looked after you. Yeah. Did he have some input into the Royal Variety Show? Peter was what was he? He was the he was the life governor of the Entertainment Artists Benevolent Fund, as it was then, uh, which is an organisation uh, which is had been set up decades, decades and decades ago, uh, in order to look after performers who'd fallen on hard times. And there's a there's a residential home in Twickenham called Brinsworth House, where um, performers are, who, who require uh, looking after or a bit of shelter uh, because they can no longer afford to look after themselves go. It's like an old folks' home for for variety turns, really. Uh, and, and the Royal Variety Show is the main fundraiser for the Entertainment Artists Benevolent Fund generally and Brinsworth House specifically. And what do you have to do to qualify to be a part of that, as in to get help from uh, the fund itself? I suppose to be in some some capacity related to show business and can demonstrate that you've fallen on hard times financially. Uh, I guess it, I guess really it's like going into an old folks' home, but this one's of a showbiz nature. Interesting story behind the the charity, the EABF. It was about the turn of the century, at the time of the British Music Hall, when all the turns, or be they singers predominantly, I guess, the occasional comic, but usually comic singers <clears throat> and jugglers and variety acts, uh, would tour the music halls. And there were so many music halls in so many cities around the country that if you were a, a singer or a performer, you could go from a week's engagement in one music hall to a week's engagement in the next music hall. And by and large, that's how you spent your life. It was kind of a peripatetic life, going from show to show. To show. And a lot of them drank hard, a lot of them played hard, and so a lot of their money, their, their salary at the end of the week, would be spent in the pub next door anyway. So when it came in your life as a performer when you'd lost either your popularity or your voice or your skill and suddenly you looked around and you thought hang on I haven't got a home to go back to because I've never lived in a home I've lived in a house I've lived in digs all my time going from theatre to theatre to theatre which you could do for years and so suddenly these people found themselves on the street and the higher paid performers I suppose of the likes of um, oh I don't know Harry Lauder th that, those those kinds of standards who could command huge fees uh, they felt really I suppose guilty that their their fellow performers were, were falling on distressed times and living in reduced circumstances and so they started what was called I think from memory because Peter told me the something like the Music Hall Artists Railway Association or some such, or they pulled a bunch, they all donated a bunch of money, 600 of them apparently, donated a bunch of money to, I think, get by Brinsworth House. So that was the home to which these destitute performers from the musical uh, could go and live in shelter and comfort. So a noble cause. Oh, it was, most certainly, yeah. And, th and that's what the Royal Variety Show generates money for. That, co that cause continues to this day. 
and Peter's role within it was quite senior. He was, yeah. Uh, Peter Pritchard was a very, he's very altruistic, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He had a, a sense of great duty over and above show business. Going back to your original thought, while it flashes through my mind, no, Peter and the EABF committee, as far as I can remember, including Peter Elliott, who, who ran Brinsworth House at that time, their input onto the Royal Variety Show was never very high. I think they were just thrilled that a television company would, would actually produce the show, which gave the Royal Variety Show a bit more cachet if, it, if, if a royal presence in the box wasn't cachet enough. You know what? Um, yeah, Peter spent his life when he wasn't working and representing artists as an agent doing good works. Maybe I'll come to that later on, maybe. And Peter met all of the members of the royal family through the royal variety performances. Yeah, uh, I think Peter hosted the rece- the interval reception where the royal party uh, went to a rather lavish room backstage or where where close to the royal box uh where they could have a a cup of tea or a drink and stuff and and yeah i've i've got photographs of peter with all the members of the royal family uh peter would say that um that prince philip philip would say to him oh pritchard are you still here <laughs> he's very proud of that <laughs> and of course you've got to bear in mind peter came from a very humble background and so suddenly there he is rubbing shoulders with, with royalty. It's extraordinary. I'm sure it was a great sense of pride for him. Yeah. Um, what was the story about Peter, rather unfortunately, getting um, punched <laughs> by one of the top billing acts at the Royal Variety Show itself? Yeah, Peter tells the story of um, arranging, helping to arrange for uh, a, a tenor, probably the best singing tenor in the world at that time, a guy called Mario Lanza. Mario Lanza had left America in 1960-something, um, owing the, I think owing the mob some money or something, and fled to Italy, where he was lay very quiet. And Peter was dispatched by uh, Leslie Grade, for whom Peter was working at the time, to Italy to try and uh, um, persuade Mario Lanza to headline the Royal Variety Show. Anyway, Peter, with his persuasive powers uh, in the outskirts of Italy, managed to to bring Mario Lanza back to host to, to to headline the Royal Variety Show. It was a huge success, but at that time, Mario Lanza was was very very nervous, very very anxious, and I guess he was looking over his shoulder, thinking that the mob were after him for whatever reason. And um, yes. Mario Lanza insisted on rehearsing his spot on the Royal Variety Show to an empty theatre, so they cleared the theatre so Lanza could uh, rehearse, and they got everybody back again. And Peter Lanza gave Peter hell. Peter hated it. Um, Lanza was immensely demanding, uh, was very often uh, drunk, uh, and... Lanza had demanded no one backstage to come and see him. And there was a knock on the door of Lanza's dressing room where he sat with Peter and a, a reporter from some newspaper stuck his head round the door and Lanza said, I said nobody into the dressing rooms. Uh, so Peter shut the door, told the bloke where to go. Peter shut the door and Lanza socked him in the eye. 
So Peter then slammed the door, left the dressing room, stormed down to the table where uh, Lou and Leslie Grade were sitting, with, I think with Bernard Delphon, and said, right, that's it. I'm done with him. I am so-and-so done with him. That's it. Look what he's done to my eye. And Leslie Grade, who was a great, uh, great man, apparently, said, OK, calm down. He said, right, what we'll do is, he said, we'll get him through this Royal Variety show, uh, calm him down, be nice, and then... Once he's met the Queen, then you can hit him. <laughs> but I don't think Peter ever did. But Peter said he actually stood behind Mario Lanza in the lineup uh, where, when the Queen uh, left, <laughs> uh, uh, was leaving the theatre, uh, and had his hands around the back of, uh, gripping the back of Mario Lanza's jacket because he he didn't know what the what the great Lanza would do, whether he would lean forward and kiss the Queen on the cheek or whatever. So I was really, I was really grabbed a bastard to Peter. <laughs> but he had a terrible time with Lanza, who then the next week topped the bill at Sunday night at the London Palladium. And then Peter toured with Lanza all over Europe, but I don't think that ended that well. So uh, he stuck with him and did quite a bit. Uh, yeah, because that was his job. If that's what if that's what Mr. Leslie, as Peter called him, if, that, if that's what uh, Leslie Gray wanted Peter to do, that then that was his job. Uh, and wasn't Peter trained by? Yeah, yeah, Peter Leslie Gray. Yes, he was. Peter started out as an agent, very very young. He was born in Shepherd's Bush, and left school at the age of fourteen. In his early teens, he used to wander down to the Shepherd's Bush Empire, the theatre down there, and help backstage, or he would help carry the performers' luggage to their digs, which was not far from where the, th- uh, the f- from the theatre. And that's how he got to know the, the stage door crew, the Shepherd's Bush Empire, and got to meet people who were entertainers. And Peter said that he, he always saw a guy sitting at the back of the theatre, very smart man. And he said to one of the stage crew, who's that? And they said, oh, that's an agent. Uh, his name's Jaime... Oh, come on, Cole. Um, Jaime Zal. Jaime Zal, the agent. So Peter went over and, and spoke with Mr Zal. Is there anything I can get for you, Mr Zal? And then after a load of weeks, he said, I really want to be an agent because Jaime Zal was afforded enormous respect by the artists and the stage crew. I thought, I want to be an agent. How do I become an agent? And uh, Jaime Zal said, well, how old are you? And Peter told him, and he said, well, no, you've got, you've got to be older to, to be an agent. You've got to get a job. So Peter Pritchard left school at 14, then got a job working for a, a lawyer, a barrister in Chambers in London called Robert Armstrong Jones, quite a famous barrister. He wasn't, but he wasn't a clerk. He was a gopher, an office boy. But he, wo- he worked for Robert Armstrong Jones, who apparently, not apparently at all, because it's a statement of fact, who was the father of Anthony Armstrong Jones, who went on to marry Princess Margaret. Oddly enough, okay, oh. yeah, that's a sidebar. That's a, a, a Pritchard anecdote. So Peter then contacted Jaime Zal again and said, I'm now 16. I'd like to be, learn to be an agent, please. And Jaime Zal hired Peter as a, an office boy. And that's how Peter Pritchard started uh, as an agent, working for Jaime Zal. He then worked for another agent called George Foster, 
or Harry Foster, one of the two. Harry Foster, I think, had a big agency. And then Peter got to hear about a new agency starting further along in the West End, uh, run by Lou and Leslie Grade. Peter met with Lou and Leslie Grade, liked them very much, so quit Foster's and joined the Grades. And there he stayed for many years. And it was, and Peter always used to say that it was it was Mr. Leslie uh, that taught him how to be a very very good agent. And Peter had some great successes and worked with some very notorious clients. Oh God, yeah. I yeah. remember him saying that uh, he had a part to play in introducing the Beatles to America. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. Uh, Lou Grade um, had a falling out with Ed Sullivan, who was an American presenter, producer. And the Ed Sullivan show was the biggest variety show in the States. It was essential viewing on a Sunday night. You know, everybody wanted to get on the Ed Sullivan show because if you made it to the Sullivan show, you know, stardom was assured. And every year, Ed Sullivan and his wife, whose name escapes me, would stay at the Savoy in London and all the London agents would bring along their files of the acts they had to offer in the hope to, that the, these these performers would get on the Ed Sullivan show in the US. And because Le, um, Lou Grade had fallen out with... <laughs> Ed Sullivan he sent Peter along he said oh there's a big American producer go and see him Peter yeah, he, 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 go, go and see him you go, go on well with him and Peter had no idea of this enmity between Grade and uh, Lord, uh, Lord Grade, Grade and um, <laughs> Ed Sullivan so Peter went along with all innocence and was invited in and Ed Sullivan said oh, you're representing Grades he said yes sir he said okay what have you got what have you got and Peter laid out all the acts that he was offering uh, for the Ed Sullivan show. And Ed Sullivan said, well, what about this guy here? And Peter said, actually, I don't think it'd be very good for your show. He's a great act, but I don't think he'd work on your show. And that kind of honesty uh, resonated with, with Ed Sullivan. And he really, he and Ed Sullivan's wife really took a shine to Peter and, and to a certain extent took him under their wing and at the same time as working for Lou and Leslie Grade, Peter also became the European talent scout for the Ed Sullivan Show in America. It's a big job. Huge. And as a consequence, uh, Ed Sullivan heard about this, this band called the Beatles who were just starting out in America. He'd seen the crowds at London Airport screaming for them and uh, called up Peter and said, tell me about the Beatles. And so... Peter did just that, and as a consequence, the Beatles were booked for the Ed Sullivan Show, and their stratospheric career took off. But uh, had Peter Peter not been aware of of the Beatles and their impact, uh, and being able to sell them uh, via Brian Epstein, who Peter knew very well, uh, the, the Beatles, as a consequence, cracked America big style. Uh, and speaking of America, Peter also had dealings with some characters in Vegas. Yeah. Um, when he was, I think it was with Foster's then. No, maybe it was the grades. Peter worked in Las Vegas. Uh, in fact, he flew between London and Las Vegas like a commuter with act, British acts who were appearing in, in Las Vegas. The thing to bear in mind about Las Vegas at that time was that it was the place 
that was run by the mobs. So Peter knew all of the bosses of the hotels. I mean, he knew Mo Dalitz, who ran the Desert Inn. Uh, Mo Dalitz, who was a, a gang boss. Uh, he knew... Yeah, the Desert, it was the Desert Inn. He knew um, a man called Major Riddle, Major A. Riddle, which is, sounds like a comic strip uh, villain, um, who owned and ran the Dunes Hotel. Um, I think Major Riddle had associations with Al Capone. Um, he knew Mylansky, who owned and ran the Sands Hotel. Um, that's where the Rat Pack performed. Sinatra, Frank Sinatra, um, Dean Martin, those guys, Frank, Sammy Davis Jr. They used to play uh, the Sands Hotel all the time. And, and Peter fondly remembered seeing the Rat Pack on stage at the Copa Room. Uh, and Jack was a personal friend of Jack Entrata. Uh, well, a name worth looking up, actually. Jack Entrata, uh, E-N-T-R-A. T-E-R, I think, was big, known as Mr. Entertainment, I believe, in Las Vegas, because he knew everybody and he was personal friends with, with Frank Sinatra. Um, and P Peter said that these mob bosses who owned these hotels in Las Vegas, he said they were always immensely charming. They were impeccable. I know in some of the movies they're seen as, as foul-mouthed, he said, but I never heard one of them swear once, not to me. Uh, he said you were always respectful and you're always aware of of, um, of of the power that they held but he said by and large they were they were very very charming uh, to peter young peter although he did get a call apparently from mo dalitz's office in the desert inn uh, when he was at grades uh, the phone went and one of the secretaries said oh peter uh, mo dalitz's office <laughs> he's on the phone oh gosh what and Modelitz's office said oh, we see that you've booked one of your acts Wilson Keppel and Betty uh, to come to play the Desert Inn and we see on your charge sheet that we're having to pay X amount of dollars for sand now do we need to remind you that Las Vegas is in the middle of the desert <laughs> and we're paying for sand and Peter had to explain that Wilson, Keppel and Betty, who were sand dancers, they used to, uh, two guys and a girl, Wilson, Keppel and Betty, Betty was the girl, sure. They used to dress up as Egyptians and do a sand dance and shuffle their feet along this sanded stage, which used to make a sh -sh 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 kind of sound. It's very entertaining. It, worth looking up on YouTube, with flickering black and white footage. Sounds like a very str strange act now. Oh, it was bizarre. It was wonderfully eccentric. I mean, you want to see it now because it's so, like, bonkers. Wonderful. But um, uh, so Peter had explained to the representatives of the Mafia that actually, yes, I'm sorry, gentlemen, uh, it's special sand. Uh, sand from the desert won't make the... <laughs> sound under the feet of the dancers and so as a consequence if you wouldn't mind paying that for the shipping of the sand i'd be very very mm. grateful not to be shot <laughs> uh, and you actually became a client of peter yeah i was very fortunate um bob look um bob monkhouse had been represented by peter pritchard for about 20 years before peter looked after bob bob had no sole agent he would just work with agents who would get him work here and there and everywhere, higgledy-piggledy. 
uh, and then he met Peter Pritchard and decided, oh gosh, yeah, I like the cut of this guy's jib, and he's very straight. Uh, he's worked with the with the grades. I've spoken with um, Mr. Lou, Mr. Leslie, and they say, yes, he's a straight guy. So straight, in fact, that you never actually had a contract with him. Yeah, that's the thing about if you were a client of Peter Pritchard Limited, you never signed uh, an agent client contract because it was a handshake. Peter's firm handshake was the deal. And his contention was, well, if you don't like what I'm doing for you, you can leave at any time and there's no contractual problem at all. In today's world, though, that would be considered absolute madness. I believe so. I don't. I, I can't think of any performers that, that haven't got a contract with their agent. I, I, I no doubt we'll get emails to to suggest that's that, that's not the case. But no, Peter's big thing was no. As is a handshake. This is the deal. It's this percentage, and I'm your sole. But I'm your sole agent and your manager. And. I think so many people stayed with Peter Pritchard for so long. Bob Monkhouse was with Peter, oh, for 40 years. I was with, longer than that, surely. I was with Peter for 30 years because he just became the the go-to guy. And he put together some tremendous deals. He really was. He was very straight, very honest. Tough. Oh, my God. Goodness me, if you crossed him, he would be... The, the, the wrath of Methuselah would come down on you. Oh, break your so-and-so legs. <laughs> Joan once told me he shouted to someone down on the phone. Taking the inspiration from the Mafia. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Across the, uh, across the that, just going back while I think of it, I, I, I said to Peter, uh, would you ever go back to Las Vegas now? And he said, no. He said, I don't like it. I, I, I remember it as it was in the film Casino. That was my time in working in Vegas with those low-rise uh, hotels. Now the high-rise stuff and the glamour and the glitz. He said, nah, I it would break my heart to see that. In fact, <laughs> Peter said that they always found watching the film Casino um, <laughs> wistfully nostalgic. <laughs> it always brought a tear to his eye of fond memories. These guys were getting beaten and buried in the sand of the desert. Uh, and as an agent, how good was he? Oh, well, I can't underestimate Peter. He was he was terrific. He engendered enormous loyalty, and he 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 let well alone. If Peter turned up at the theatre or in a television studio, all the producers would look and say, "Stomachs up," because Pritchard's here. He would never ever go along unless the performer requested him to be there, and he would only ever turn up if there was a problem. And he said, and that was the trick. If you turn up and they go, oh gosh, here comes Peter, we've got a problem. Then, you you know, it, aff- it afforded uh, the producer's attention. What were some of the bigger deals that he put together for uh, the talent that he represented? Well, one of the most, I suppose, the most famous deals that Peter put together was for, for Jimmy Tarbuck. Yeah, that, oh gosh, yeah. That was the, the London weekend deal which Peter negotiated with David Bell uh, and probably as high as Brian Tesla, uh, who was the chairman of the company in those days. And this was for colossal money per show. And as a consequence, uh, that led to 
live from Her Majesty's and live from the Piccadilly, those big old live Saturday, uh, Sunday night variety shows, which kind of had had echoes of Sunday night, the London Palladium, produced by David Bell. And we, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago with Les Dennis. So that was a massive deal that Jimmy put uh, Peter put together for Jimmy. Uh, Bob Monkhouse also benefited from Peter's uh, nous with television companies uh, when. Family Fortunes was coming to a natural conclusion, and it was no, actually no, it's a lie. It wasn't coming to a natural conclusion. There, there was Bob felt that the next series of Family Fortunes was an assured deal, but John Scofield said, "Oh no, no, it's not an assured deal. You know, don't get above yourself. You might not, no, you might not get it." No, and Bob said to Peter, "Oh, I got that reaction from John Scofield, who was the head of entertainment at ATV in those days." And Peter said, "Right." So he called Jim Moyer at the BBC and said, if Monkhouse became available, darling, would you... Um, and, and Jim Moyer said, oh, it would be marvellous. Yes, we'd sign Bob. So it's a great surprise to everybody. Bob didn't sign a new contract with ATV, left, left ITV, went to the BBC for about seven years, where he did a lot of good shows. And that's where I really joined him, uh, uh, writing for Bob Monkhouse in earnest full time. Uh, and then... Peter negotiated another deal where Bob would scoodle back to ITV. So whenever he felt that Bob was being taken for granted, taken for granted by a television company, he thought, OK, we'll move him on. And as a consequence, each deal was was bigger than the last. I remember Peter saying to me years later that he approached the great Tony, Tony Wolfe at Central Television in Nottingham and said, Supposing Bob was thinking about leaving the BBC, would you want to sign him? And Tony said, yes, my, yes, absolutely, my old chum, absolutely. And Peter said, what could you offer? And Tony on the hoof said, well, I could offer him this, this and this and probably this money. And Peter thought, OK. Um, Tony, would you mind your secretary coming in and maybe just typing that up for us? Because I'll, I'll be quite happy to sign that arrangement now. And the deal that Tony Wolfe was offering was so good that Peter thought, if I go in now, it would seem churlish to try and want more money because the man's being incredibly generous. And I don't want to do that. So So he wasn't greedy. Oh, no, no. Peter always said to me, he said, we've got to get them to pay the correct money, love. There's got to be the correct money. And I, I always found that statement to be fascinating. But... And it's a big but. Who knew when Peter was negotiating the deals for me on those game shows that I did for so I did so many game shows for so long? Who knew that they would ever get repeated? So Peter never bothered about a residual clause in the contract because it's a game show. Who's going to see? Who's going to want to repeat Bobswell House or Every Second Counts or Takeover Bid? Never going to be repeated at all. So now we spool forward a couple of decades and challenge the game show channel starts and I, I promise you faithfully Marky this is this is the honest truth on Tom Press's life this is the truth one week on challenge I counted shows that I'd been involved in 60 60 repeats on challenge of game shows that I had a credit on and we checked the contract no residuals. I didn't get a penny piece. 
So imagine, imagine, God, imagine what we'd have earned if 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 Peter had. The go- and this is not a. Uh, it sounds like I'm knocking Peter. Of course, I wouldn't. You know, <laughs> it's a hindsight thing, isn't it? Sure. Who'd have thought? Didn't know that the future of television would be that they would repeat so many of those shows. Yeah, and, and be, be damn grateful for seeing Jim Bull, Jim Bowen doing Bullseye or, or Les looking like his own son now hosting Family Fortunes. If only yes. we'd be with uh, oh. the mafia in Vegas, yes. living it large in Absolutely. one of the hotels. <laughs> one thing I tell what Peter Pritchard did say, he said, uh, "Mr. Lou was the businessman, but Mr. Leslie had the eye for the talent, and and Mr. Leslie, Leslie Grade, was the guy that nurtured Peter's ability uh, to be a, a very very strong good agent." There's that lovely apocryphal story of Bob hosting the Golden Shot which Peter Pritchard managed to land for him uh, at ATV. And the Golden Shot shifted from a Saturday night live show to a Sunday afternoon live show. And Peter thought, hmm. So when the new contract came through, it obviously it was for sat- Sunday afternoon money. And Peter said to Lou Grade, he said, Mr Lou, that's no good. Because obviously Bob's going to have to turn down work because Bob works in cabaret on a Sunday night and if he's on a live show till five o'clock in the afternoon he's not going to get to the cabaret venue in the evening and we're talking big money because Bob's earning big money Mr Lou can you help me here and Peter negotiated almost pretty much the same Saturday night money for Golden Shot as as he did for the the Sunday show that's what I'm trying to say and and of course what happened was Bob uh, would do his Sunday afternoon golden shot, leave the studio at 20 past five, get in a fast car, uh, go to go to Wakefield Theatre Club anyway. And Mr. Lou got to hear about this and, no, and apparently, notoriously, uh, Mr. Lou bumped into uh, into Bob Monkhouse. Uh, Bob was driving out <laughs> of the studios at, at Elstree. As Mr. Lou was driving in, being driven in. Uh, Mr. Lou wound his window down and shouted, thief, and drove on. <laughs> because... Uh, Mr. Lou knew that, that Peter had, had rooked him. And so Mr. Lou phoned up Peter and said, you've done me over. And Peter said, well, you trained me, Governor. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, 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 the, that's the strange thing about Peter. He had enormous, enormous regard uh, for the grades and was immensely grateful for what they taught him and the start that they really, they, the start they gave him, elevated his career as an agent. And um, when um, <laughs> there's there's a famous interview on Wogan where Lou Grade is being interviewed by Sir Terry, and um, L- Lou says that uh, Mr. Lou, forgive me, uh, says that uh, oh, and, uh, yeah, Terry asks about his uh, Sir Lou, uh, Mr. Lou's cigars, huge cigars he used to smoke, and Lou Grade said yes. He said uh, one of my one of the boys in the office, Peter Pritchard, came in to me one day and he said, any chance of a raise, Mr. Lou? And I said, well, what are you thinking of, Peter? And Peter said, well, maybe the price of one of your cigars. And Lou Gray said, well, he said, I'll tell you this, Peter. When your work gives me as much satisfaction as this cigar, then you'll get the raise. <laughs> but um, in the uh, another story, I think Peter got the raise, actually. But another story is that another agent came in to, to see Mr. Lou and said, you're Peter Pritchard. 
Is he Jewish? And Lugrade said, no, but it doesn't show in his work. <laughs> and Peter was always immensely proud of that because that was high praise coming from one of the great grades. <laughs> and is it right that he's still the only agent to have received an honour from the Queen? Yeah. Yes, he is. That's right. That's exactly right. Peter, Peter Pritchard, OBE. Lord Grade, uh, Mr. Leslie's son, Michael Grade, was ennobled, but not when he was an agent. He was ennobled after he was an agent. Uh, Lord Delfont got a lordship, but only after he stopped being an agent and became a, a theatre owner. So Peter, when Peter died, was, was and is still, I think, the only agent per se, in, a theatrical agent, to be honoured by the Queen with a, an MBE, OBE, CBE. But Peter got the OBE. But it was also for his altruistic charity work and the work that he did for the AEBF and the public service that Peter did. Um, remember, Peter, you, in, on top of being a top show business agent, appearing on television as a judge on a talent show called New Faces, um, which was long before uh, Britain's Got Talent and the X Factor and all that kind of stuff, uh, Peter was on the judging panel of that particular show. But Peter, although he was an agent and appearing on TV at the time, still found time to be a special constable in the West End. He had a very uh, interesting life. He did. He, in, fact, in fact, he had, yes. Oh, and your gosh, do you remember? Oh, God, they came here quite often. He loved you. Loved you and Luce. Oh, but that's, that's, that's not for this podcast. <laughs> and he, was a, he was a special constable in the Metropolitan in, Police? In the Met, yeah. And also uh, was a, an honorary sheriff over in a no, couple of places in the States. Actually, it wasn't an honorary role. It was, um, it was a, a, a practice role. It, he was a, a deputy sheriff for the sheriff's department in Fort Myers when he and Joan uh, had an apartment in Florida, which they used to go to when, it, when Peter was winding down frequently. Peter used to sit around thinking, I need to do something. I need to do some public service. So he approached the sheriff's office uh, and was sworn in as a, as a deputy sheriff. I guess maybe Peter's experience on the mean streets of Soho on a Saturday night in the 1960s and the 1970s had something to do with it. Uh, and right until Peter died, he was getting Christmas cards from, from the sheriff's office at Fort Myers. Um, as was uh, Joan, still Joan Pritchard, uh, Peter's widow, still gets Christmas cards from Robert Precht, uh, a, may, a name, don't mean a light now, but he was the producer of the Ed Sullivan show in the uh. 1950s. I mean, the, the biggest producer. Also, Ed Sullivan's son-in-law as well. But Robert Precht, still alive, living in... in uh, um, 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 um. Malibu? No, not as good as that. Well, no, it's, no, it is as good as that. Begins with M. I've got a T-shirt with the name of the of the estate. Maybe somewhere cold up, up towards the the top. I'll, I'll, I'll think of it. Um, but yeah, Joan still gets Christmas cards from from Robert Precht. So Peter was fondly fondly remembered in the U.S. Even, even uh, that he didn't write his life story. Well, oddly enough, you won't know this, but he and I tried to. In fact, I've still got the notes in the attic above the office here. Um, and I've got photographs. And I suppose that's what's prompted these memories of, of Peter's time uh, with the grades and in Las Vegas with, with the mobsters. We tried to... We, we, we didn't try to. We wrote his life story. Sent it to several publishers, approached several 
guys, none of them are interested. Who's interested in Peter Pritchard's life story? Maybe in years to come, but uh, at the time when Peter was alive, we couldn't get it away, which is a shame. And I think Peter went to went to his grave regretting that his life story wasn't put into print. Maybe one day when I get a bit of time, blow the dust off those stories and, and push it out to a publisher. But really, you know, I've, I've talked about names which are not remembered now. But at the ter- at the time were, um, you know, the, the players within the, in the game that uh, was television and show business. They were, but, you know, who remembers Mario Lanza? Would anyone be interested in Mario Lanza anecdotes? Or Johnny Ray anecdotes? Or that kind of stuff, you know? I suppose it's... It's sort. Of, it's two generations gone now. Yeah, in a sense, it's of its time. Um, I think, you know, it, it was a shame, but you know, you move on, don't you? It's one. It's one of them things. But oh my gosh, what an incredible man Peter Pritchard was! I can't. I can't speak highly enough of him. He was so influential. After my dad died, he was. He was very influential in my life, along with Bob Monkhouse. You know, they teach you how to behave and how to conduct yourself and how to deal with people and when you think Peter Pritchard left school at 14 in Shepherd's Bush in fact Peter used to say that when he used to go to Television Centre BBC Television Centre in Wood Lane he always used to try and park his car on the sixth floor of the multi-storey car park overlooking McFarland Avenue I think it is the road down below because that was his bedroom that used to be his bedroom. Before they built the multi-storey car park at Television Centre, uh, there were a, a row of houses on that side of McFarland Avenue. And Peter's house was exactly where... Sweet. Yeah. And he, he said, I, I, I would look over the, the balcony of the, um, of the car park and look at the house opposite. And he said, that was my exact view from my bedroom uh, before that house was, was bombed during the war. And as you always say... We shall not see his like again. We shall not see his like again, absolutely. He was a very kind and uh, and generous man, Uncle Peter. He certainly was, yeah. Uh, and uh, God love him. Uh, we owe much to him. Well, I think a very uh, lovely way to uh, end this week's episode. Thank you very much, Dad. Oh, but no, thank you, Mark. It's good to, good to have you back behind the microphone here in the, in the septic tank. <laughs> Indeed, I've been loving life in the septic tank. <laughs> um, <laughs> So all that remains is for us to say thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode. Uh, If you'd like to contact us to put forward any questions for future episodes, then please do go to the Steam Smoke and Mirrors website, which is steamsmokeandmirrors.com, and you'll find a contact tab there where you can email us. Thank you all very much for listening. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Yeah, see you next week. Thank you.